welcome back. This is Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be looking at different kinds of undead. We're going to be looking at revenants. Revenants are a lot like our modern conception of zombies. And then we're going to be covering some ghost stories that have survived from antiquity. Revenant comes from an old French term that means the returner. These are people who return from the dead, but they're walking around in their bodies, as if their bodies had not decayed, nothing had happened to them. They're able to talk to people, interact with them. Now, three of the stories I'm going to tell you come from a collection called The Book of Marvels by a guy named Flagan. He was writing in the second century AD, so this was the height of the Roman Empire. And this guy had apparently worked for the Roman Emperor Hadrian at one point. And the Book of Marvels has all kinds of stories in it. It really is kind of a crazy collection of these revenants, or undead. Now, the first one is the story of a girl named Philenion. Philenion died very young, was buried in the family tomb. Her parents, father's name was Demostratus, and her mom's name was Carito, had apparently taken in a house guest, a young man named Makadis. And one night, Philenion showed up in the room where Makadis was sleeping. And apparently they had something to eat and drink together. They were obviously attracted to each other, so they slept together that night. And she took off the next morning before sunrise. It was a custom among young people in Greek and Roman times to exchange gifts, tokens of their love and affection. She ended up giving him a gold ring, and he gave her an iron ring and also a gilded wine cup. Gilded meaning it was gold-plated. Well, the next day, Philenian shows up for a second night. And this time, the housekeeper apparently had heard a little something going on, happened to look in, saw that there was somebody sleeping in the bed next to Makati's, told the mother, Carito, and she looked in, and it was dark, and she didn't really want to create a ruckus at that time, so she looked in, and she couldn't really see much, but she knew that there was a girl in bed with Makati's, and he wasn't supposed to have any extra guests in there. So she confronted him the next morning after Felinion had gone. And he was kind of embarrassed, but he did admit, yeah, I've been getting visits from a young girl. I really like her. And he said, well, I'm supposed to be quiet about this because she said she's here without her parents' knowledge. But she said her name was Felinion. And you can imagine the shock and surprise that Carito felt when she heard that. And then he produced the gold ring, said, she gave me this. And when Carito saw the gold ring, she just almost completely broke down started wailing and crying because she recognized the ring. The ring had been on Felinian's finger when she had been buried in the family tomb six months before. Well, that night, Felinian shows up again. Nothing apparently physical had started. They were just eating and drinking together, her Makati's. But Demostris and Carito barged their way into the room. And they were actually, according to the story, just overjoyed to see her. You know, their daughter isn't really dead. She's come back. Philenian wasn't very happy. The story is that she stood up, looked at them, and said, You've intruded on this pleasure that I have, so the two of you are going to grieve for me all over again. And then she collapsed, fell dead, yet again. Demostris and Carito, by this point, really feel like they need help. They alert the whole town, and the townspeople say, Well, we need to go inside your family tomb and see what's going on. So they open up the tomb, and bodies will be placed on a kind of stone slab in there and not covered up or anything, maybe by a shroud, so they would just decay on the stone slab. While the slab where she had been put was empty, but sitting there on the stone slab was the iron ring and the gilded cup the Makatis had given her. Now in town they had somebody named Helus who was a seer, or mantis is the Greek word for it, somebody they thought could communicate with the gods and the spirit world. They asked Helus, what do we do? 
He said, take Felinian's body, cremate it outside the city limits, and you will dispel this curse. And this is what they do. And she never appears again because her body's been destroyed and no one sees her ghost afterwards. There's a sad postscript as well. And that's that Makatis was so overcome with grief and probably shocked too at the idea that he has actually had sex with a dead body for the last two nights before. According to Flagan, he killed himself in despair. That story was creepy enough. What we have next is another account written by Flagan. This is about a man named Polycleitus. Polycleitus was apparently some kind of a local official in an area of Greece called Etolia. And he got married. He ended up dying four days after the wedding. His widow gave birth to a baby that was what was called at the time a hermaphrodite. This did become a traditional term, but we don't like to use it anymore. The modern term for this is intersexed. But this is a baby that is born with both male and female genitals. Still happens every so often, a certain percentage of births. The birth of a hermaphrodite, whether human or animal, was never seen as a good luck sign. So the town where Polycleitus and his widow lived, his widow's name is not given, by the way, in the story. The town assembly met and they're going to debate what to do in this situation. And generally the idea is there's a curse. If a hermaphrodite is born, there is some kind of curse that needs to be dispelled. So in the assembly, they were talking about the idea of actually killing the widow and the baby, burning them to death. But during the debate, Polycleitus himself walked into the building, dressed all in black. Everyone panicked. They started to run out the door. He began to speak. He said, do not run. Hand over the child to me. He said, if you do not hand over my child, a calamity will befall everyone in town. Apparently, people were so shocked that they just sort of stood there. They hesitated. So Polycleitus lost patience. He grabbed the baby and he began to devour it, leaving only the head. By this point, the people in the assembly picked up stones, began to throw them at Polycleitus, and he fled. Well, now the people of the assembly decide they want to send an embassy, a group of people from the town, to a place called Delphi, a female oracle called the Pythia, who would answer questions about what to do in certain situations. She would get approached by individuals or by governments. All of a sudden, after they announce that they're going to send an embassy to Delphi, the baby's head, which is still sitting on the ground, thrown there by Polycleitus before he ran, begins to speak. And it says, all of you will die in a year. Do not go to Delphi. Do not send anyone to Delphi. Flee this town. Leave my head unburied and expose it to the dawn. And then the baby's head stopped talking. Well, the men of the town decided to take their wives and their children to another town for safekeeping. They awaited whatever calamity they felt was going to happen. Apparently, they thought it was their duty to stick around. As it turns out, the calamity foretold by the baby's head was a war, a war with a neighboring town, the Akronanians, and many of the men on both sides were killed. The last account told in Flagan's Book of Marvels is actually set during a historical event that's well documented. This was a battle that happened between the Romans and a Greek kingdom called the Seleucids, who at the time were led by a king named Antiochus III. This was a battle that took place at Thermopylae. Now, you may or may not remember that name Thermopylae, but if you've seen the movie 300, you know about it. You know that that's a place where another battle happened, a very famous battle between the Spartans and the Persians during the Second Persian War. Persian King Xerxes had invaded the Greek mainland, and there was a famous last stand of Greek soldiers led by Spartans. Well, Thermopylae was a really strategic mountain pass. It was really the only way through central Greece for a good part of history. Now, that much more famous battle of Thermopylae happened in 480 BC. The one we're talking about here happened in 191 BC. This is during the Hellenistic period of ancient Greek history. 
and also the time of the Roman Republic. So the Seleucid forces used the same defensive position that the Spartans and other Greeks had used centuries before. The Romans outflanked them. The Romans found the way around the pass that the Persians had discovered. Antiochus III had been forced to retreat, and the Roman soldiers were looting the dead. Now, there was a soldier who had fought on the Seleucid side named Buplagos. He was from Syria. His body laid there, having taken 12 wounds. During the looting, Buplagos stood up, and he began to speak. He told the Roman soldiers to stop looting the Greek dead, or they will suffer the anger of the god Zeus. And then he fell down again, dead. The Roman soldiers, horrified, took the corpse of Buplagos, cremated it, and began to do a sacrifice to Zeus and the other gods. They also decided to send an embassy to Delphi. Romans did this kind of thing too. Delphi was very close to Thermopylae, so they got their answer back fast. The answer from the Pythia was, restrain yourself now, Roman. Now soon after hearing the response from Delphi, one of the Roman officers named Publius was suddenly possessed. He began to speak with a different voice, a raving madman's voice, warning the Romans not to invade Asia. Ares will ravage you. That was the Greek god of war. It was like the Roman god Mars. Ares will ravage you if you plunder Asia. He then climbed an oak tree and announced in a loud voice, a red wolf will devour me. Lo and behold, a red wolf suddenly appeared in the area. It ran up to the tree. Publius let go of the trunk and branches, fell to the ground, and the wolf devoured him, leaving only the head. Now, as it turns out, the Romans actually did invade Asia. It's Asia Minor, what we would call the country of Turkey today into the territory of Antiochus III. They defeated him again at the Battle of Magnesia and forced him to sign a peace treaty, a very humiliating one. The story is not something that is in accordance with later events. Modern historians think that this is an example of what's called resistance literature, that this was an idea of the Greeks trying to say that it was a terrible thing the Romans ended up doing to the Greek world. I've got one more tale of a revenant for you, but in this case, it's a vampire. This is in a book by Philostratus, the biography, the life of Apollonius of Tiana, the famous pagan philosopher. There are many miracles attributed to him, including raising the dead, healing the sick. And this is part of his life story, where he saves a young man from the clutches of a female vampire. This is said to have happened in the Greek city of Corinth. A young man, age 25, named Menippus, was studying philosophy there. He was walking down a road outside of Corinth by himself, and he met an alluring woman who seemed to almost cast a hypnotic spell over him. She told him that she had longed for him from afar. They began to spend time together. They had a relationship, and it didn't take long for Menippus to propose marriage to this woman. Apollonius of Tiana somehow ended up at the wedding feast, and he was able to tell right away that something was very wrong with Menippus's new bride. Apollonius went up to Menippus and said, You are cherishing a serpent. The vampire's cover was blown. Apollonius said, this woman is an empuza. Now, there are actually several synonyms for this kind of female vampire. Empuza, Lamia. She admitted to fattening up Menippus. She was going to feast upon his blood and flesh when she felt ready. But now that the subterfuge has been exposed, she now vanishes into thin air, and Menippus's life is saved. We are now going to turn to surviving accounts of ghosts and haunted houses in classical history. These are the sort of classic insubstantial ghosts, floating spirits and so forth. And it's not that they couldn't do things to people, they could hurt them. The Athenians spoke of the ghost of Theseus, that Theseus appeared at the Battle of Marathon and fought against Persians and actually killed Persian soldiers. 
And there's a Roman story by Apuleius of a woman who was cheated on by her husband, and she used a spell to a sick ghost on her unfaithful husband. The ghost is said to have cornered him in a room, and he was found hanged. In ancient Athens, they had a festival of ghosts. It was called the Anthesteria, where they believed that the dead walked the streets. This happened right around the time of February. Athenian families smeared their doors with pitch, and they also chewed hawthorn leaves as ways of protecting themselves. The Romans had a very ancient festival called the Lemuria. This covered three days in May, and during those three days, ghosts were believed to actually return home to the houses of their families. At the end of that festival, the man of the house would walk around the house performing a ritual, reciting certain words and using certain hand gestures, dropping beans on the floor as well too in every room because beans had mystical properties. Some people thought that they had human souls contained within them. And he would clash together bronze implements. That sound was believed to frighten ghosts. There's some stories of Roman emperors being haunted by ghosts. The infamous emperor Nero had his own mother Agrippina killed. She had been very domineering over him. He had become emperor at age 16, and she had actually co-ruled as what was called an Augusta. So he had her killed. Originally, he tried to do it in a way that made it look like an accident. He had a boat given to his mother as a gift, a kind of pleasure boat, almost like a yacht. It was rigged to fall apart on its maiden voyage at sea, and it did fall apart. But his mother was a better swimmer than he bargained for. And so the next day, he had to send soldiers to kill her. And then he spread around a story that she had been involved in a plot against his life. But in the wake of her murder, Nero began to have nightmares about his mother. There's also a much more obscure emperor, but just as crazy as Nero in many ways, Caracalla from several hundred years later. Caracalla and his brother Gaeta had inherited the throne from their father Septimius Severus. But soon after the death of their father, Caracalla had his brother Gaeta killed. But he believed that the ghost of Gaeta haunted him. And he actually held seances in an attempt to placate his brother's ghost. Not everyone in ancient times actually believed in ghosts or thought that they were spirits or supernatural entities. Philosophers like Aristotle and Lucretius were very skeptical of the phenomenon, at least in terms of supernatural explanations. Aristotle thought that as people were in darkened rooms right on the edge of falling asleep, their sense perceptions would be greatly changed from what they would normally see and hear. And this is why people would think that they would perceive spirits in the room. Lucretius actually came up with almost a more modern scientific idea because Lucretius believed in atoms. He followed an ancient Greek concept that things were made of tiny particles called atoms and that atoms would be sort of lost or shed by objects. So when somebody had been in an area in their lifetime, Lucretius thought that it left behind almost a kind of haze or a film of atoms and that might be what people would see when they would see a ghost. We have two different stories of haunted houses that have survived from ancient Greek and Roman writings. One of them was written by a man named Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger served as an official to the Emperor Trajan. And we have a number of private letters that Pliny the Younger wrote. One of them was to his friend Lucius Sura, where he was asking Sura whether or not he believed in ghosts and supernatural hauntings. So Pliny the Younger launches into the story about a haunted house in Athens. He describes this house as a place that was known to all the neighbors as a place where you could hear clanking and clashing of metal at night and everyone was frightened. No one wanted to approach the house. People stopped living there because they would see a ghost of an old man. He was incredibly thin and covered in filth and his arms and legs had chains on them, shackles. So this is actually an idea that you see in A Christmas Carol, Marley's Ghost. They would get very, very ill. Some actually died in the house and so nobody wanted to live there after a while. Well, along comes a philosopher named Athenodorus. He sees how low the price is for the house. 
both to buy it and to rent it. So Athenodorus noticed the low price. He asked around, found out the stories about the house, decided he wanted to stay there. So the first night that he's in the house, as soon as it becomes dark, he stays up in a room writing at his desk by the light of a lamp. This would be an oil lamp. And he heard the sound of shackles. And the sound was building in volume and intensity. It was getting closer and closer to the room where he was. And then he heard the sound come through the doorway and into the room. He turned, looked behind him. He saw the ghost of the description, an old man, very thin and very filthy. Now, the ghost didn't say anything to him. He simply motioned to Athenodorus. He beckoned him as if he was saying, come with me. Athenodorus followed the ghost out into the courtyard, and then suddenly the ghost disappeared. But Athenodorus noticed the place where the ghost was standing right before he vanished. The next morning, he informed people in the neighborhood of what had happened. People grabbed shovels and began to dig in the spot right underneath where the ghost had vanished. And they found a skeleton that had been bound with chains. They gave it a proper burial and the haunting stopped. There's also a haunted house story in a writing called The Lover of Lies by Lucian. And again, there's a philosopher who's the hero of this story. This was a house that had belonged to a man named Eubatides. And it's the same situation. People couldn't stay there. They were too frightened at the occurrences that would befall them if they stayed there. So the house had been deserted for a long period of time, and it was starting to fall apart. A philosopher named Aragnotus decided to stay there. And Aragnotus had a collection of books in the Egyptian language, ancient Egyptian lore about ghosts and magic. So again, the story is really similar. Aragnotus works late into the night by the light of a lamp and a ghost appears. This apparition is said to be filthy and having long hair. The difference this time is that the ghost actually attacks the philosopher Aragnotus. But he's ready for this. He begins to chant a spell from one of his books in the ancient Egyptian language. When the ghost hears the spell being recited, it has an immediate effect on it. It begins to thrash around and it starts to change its shape. It changes its form into a dog, then into a bull, and then into a lion. But Argnotus persists, recites the spell. He chants the spell. And the spirit is forced back. It is forced to retreat. Argnotus forces the spirit into the corner of a room. It begins to sink into the floor. First the feet disappear, then the legs, finally the head, until it has disappeared completely. So Aragnotus decided to go to sleep. He apparently no longer feared to return to the spirit after having completed his spell. The next morning he walked out of the house and the neighbors were astonished. They did not think that Aragnotus would survive through the night. He told them to come and dig under the floor of the room, right at the spot where the ghost had sunk downwards. Several feet down, they found a body which they then reburied. And the house was cleansed of the evil, murderous spirit. I'd like to thank everyone for listening in today. Thanks to Dave at California Dingo Media for the logo and image. The two pieces of music that you heard were Magical Gravitation by Mosway Studios at royaltyfreemusic.com and The Morning Song by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com licensed under Creative Commons. I hope to have all of you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Welcome back. This is Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be looking at different kinds of undead. We're going to be looking at revenants. Revenants are a lot like our modern conception of zombies. 
and then we're going to be covering some ghost stories that have survived from antiquity. Revenant comes from an old French term that means the returner. These are people who return from the dead, but they're walking around in their bodies. 